This episode of Coffee and Cults will contain strong language, discussion of suicide, murder, animal cruelty, and other material that may not be suitable for all listeners. It also features real-life recordings that some may find disturbing. If you've been affected by any of the subjects discussed, there are links to support resources in our show notes. We're going to talk to you. You are the initiate. You are the cause we've been. I found out that I was actually getting a two-inch by two-inch brand with a cover as a man. We no longer under the laws of Moses. The world that he can cut with violence and the violence shall take it by force. Coffee. And cults. <sighs> Hi, Sam. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Coffee and Cults, where once a month we drink coffee, or sometimes gin, and talk cults and fringe religious groups from around the world. This, well, we say we do this every month, but we're doing them a bit more regularly. So this episode, welcome to your unreliably periodic podcast. Um, We will be discussing the one and only Jim Jones and the People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ. Which is like the big one, isn't it, Sam? And I think all the way back in episode one, I mentioned the fact that this was probably one of the earliest cults that I found out about and read about and really had that visceral gut reaction of going, what on earth happened there? Um, Me too. So it's been really interesting to sort of revisit it and and also realise how little I actually knew. I know. Because I thought, because I knew about the Guiana stuff a bit, but not quite the extent of it. And it was all the preceding stuff that led up to it and how fluctuatory, that's a word now. It how is. Fluctuatorily it went. Yeah, and all kinds of sort of details mm-hmm. and um, ways that the church ran um, that just I had absolutely no idea about. Um, I'm going to say right at the top, listeners, we have done and I'm not doing this to show off, more research, I think, probably, than we've done for anything else before. I've probably watched somewhere in the region of six documentaries. Well, yeah. I've read plenty of things, listened to umpteen um, podcasts that I'm sure will do a factual narrative version of this much better um, than we will. We've each read a different book. Do you want to shout out your book, Sam? Yes, so I've been reading The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple by Jeff Gwynn. And I've been reading Raven, The Untold Story of the Reverend Jim Jones and His People by Tim Reiterman. I enjoyed my book very much. I enjoyed mine as well, especially with the author's personal um, connection. Oh, interesting. I don't know about that, but you mm. can tell me later. But I think it's worth saying, listeners, we're not going to be able to tell you everything. We're going to miss things out. Those of you that might be familiar with the case, almost certainly there's something you'd really want us to talk about that we might miss. Um, If you want all of that more detail, we recommend these books. We recommend the documentaries that are out there. Um, But we're going to do our best to um, lead you through. And the reason we're doing the big guns now um, for Jonestown is because uh, we're recording this slightly earlier in November, but we're going to release this on the 18th of November this year, 2018, which will mark 40 years since, spoiler alert, the infamous massacre at Jonestown. We're hoping it's not in bad taste and it is very much in memory of those 900 odd people. Um, We've got on a bit of a sad like line here, but we're going to drink our first ever Kool-Aid now before we get to the sad stuff. Because it's such a famous thing and we thought, we're Brits, we've not had Kool-Aid. So John diligently bought some Kool-Aid. It's not a thing, American listeners, in the UK. Not just the brand, but to have um, like a soft drink that is a powder stirring. We just don't have that here. No. I don't think we ever had. And before any pedants in the audience are already scribbling their email (laughs) note to us, we are aware that actually Jonestown used off-brand uh cheap flavor flavor aid um but that you really can't get your hands on um i would imagine their sales have gone down over time so uh <laughs> we've 
That's fine. It's really important to say, listeners, um, we're going to try and keep some of this light, particularly in this first uh, episode, um, before we get on to the second one. That is in no way meant as disrespect to anybody. The reason that we want to talk about this kind of thing is because we think it's really important to remember what happened. Our laughter is either because we're dealing with really dark material and we're trying to find our way through it. Yes. So it's to keep us a little bit sane. And also... Sometimes we're just going to take the piss out of Jim Jones because I think he'd want to be taken seriously and I will be fucked if I'm going to treat this man seriously. Absolutely. So we will try and keep our most sort of ridiculous piss taking. None of it is directed at the members or survivors or anyone like that. It's all directed at how fucking nuts and evil Jones was. Um, That said, we're going to get this out of the way really quickly because we just wanted to know what it was like because it's not here. So I have a pint... (laughs) of um, grape flavoured Kool-Aid. Um, shall I go first? Do you want to go first, Sam? You go first. Go on, John. Okay. I'm and watching I'm... John take his first ever sip of Kool-Aid. It smells... I feel like this is a uh, reference for UK listeners. There used to be um, a woman on TV called Jill someone, Jilly someone, who was a wine critic, who would always make a big deal of <laughs> the wine okay. and saying what it, saying the ridiculous things she thought it tasted of. Um, I think Jill curly hair of the 90s would say it smells like a fruity swimming pool that's the (laughs) description i'm gonna give oh yeah it smells like oh it's a bit perfumey as well yeah interesting okay go on um so i'm gonna just take a little uh a little drink sipping i'd like to take this opportunity to thank you all for your wonderful itunes reviews and for talking to us by email and social media and things we absolutely love talking to you you can find us on instagram facebook and twitter at coffee and cults or email us at coffee and cults at gmail.com okay john's just had his sip and he is squinting and frowning it's kind of it's not actually a very strong it's not a very strong flavor i wonder if we haven't put in that we did lots of research earlier about how much we should put in um to work i say a lot of research my other half googled it briefly I just had a sip. mm. I'm not sure it's ever seen a real grape in its life. No, it's like, have you ever had Powerade? Yes. It's got that sort of weird... Yeah, it kind of is a bit of a weak taste, at least in the quantity that we've done it. Oh, it definitely doesn't mention grapes actually being in it on the ingredients (laughs) list, which I think is um, fair enough. That is really... Unpleasant. The mm-hmm. aftertaste is really kind of um. Feels like my mouth is coated in a thin layer of something horrible. Yeah, sugar maybe. To wash it down, we've also got a lovely locally produced gin to us, um, by the people at Barbican Botanicals, which are a young independent company, and it is a very tasty gin. I'm gonna have some of that now to get this uh, taste of the drink out of my mouth. What's really good, Sam, is that I have enough to make <laughs> maybe a gallon of this now. Oh, no, makes no. eight quarts, however much a quart is. That's, I think, more than I will ever want to um, want to drink. Um, it is gluten-free, though, so, oh, so it's not all bad. That's what I'm saying. Great. Um, well, now that's out of the way, we probably won't drink that ever again. No, <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> Um, so this is probably the most infamous group that we're going to ever talk about. And almost everybody listening to this, and I'm really sorry if this is a spoiler, will know of the terrible end that we're going to be um, heading towards, which before the September 11th attacks was the largest number of American civilian casualties in a single um Event. Unnatural event, yeah, something that wasn't caused by a natural disaster, oh, um, with more than nine hundred deaths and a cult that at one point had like thousands mm-hmm. of members. So, yeah, the topic is just huge. But we're going to be getting to that next episode, which I'm not sure what date we're going to put that out, but it will be soon. Watch out. Um, if you're just joining us as well, uh, usually this is kind of a departure from our regular routine. Usually, John and I will explain one cult per podcast, and we will one person will have researched and explain it to the other one. This time, we have both researched the same cult, so we're gonna kind of muddle our way through how we both speak about the same thing at the same time. Yeah.
And hopefully, because we've all looked at slightly different things, we'll be able to give you a little bit of a a different take. Um, and so we're going to start right at the beginning, um, right at the origins of uh, James Warren Jones, who will become the leader of this uh, group and his origins uh, way back in the 1930s. Okay, so I don't know where your notes have started, John, but mine start with Lunette Putnam, who was born in 1902 or 1904. She would often change what age she gave to people. Okay. So no one really knows exactly when she was born. And uh, throughout her young adulthood, her name changed from Lunette to Lunette with an E, and then Lynette with an E, before ending up at Lynetta. So I'll jump in at this point because I just want to share the notes that I have uh, written down here, um, which say we're going to get to his birth in a minute. But um, Lynetta Jones seems like kind of a badass to me early oh, on. Really? She seems like a twat. <laughs> so Sorry, here's our first does. disagreement, which is quite yeah. exciting. But I think for the 1920s and 1930s, you have this woman who tries to put herself through agricultural college and then when that doesn't yeah. work tries to go to business college um she's pro sort of animal rights she decides she doesn't want to get married she's going to do the independent woman thing okay, that so in the 20s or cool. 30s is kind of cool yeah but then it's all the like spiritual stuff that she goes on about and it's how she well she she makes her son into this fucker so she's obviously not great john <laughs> however much you you love Lynette no i i'm gonna read this description <laughs> and i defy you to think that she doesn't sound cool Lynetta, this is a quote from uh, Raven by Tim Rittman. Uh, Lynetta steamed through town like a locomotive, puffing on a hand-rolled cigarette, clouds of smoke in her wake. The skinny, undernourished woman with a pretty face and flat black hair stirred rumours of Indian blood, literally wore the pants in the family. She was loud, foul-mouthed and manly to some. Rarely did she wear a dress. Her language was colourful. She drank beer at home and made no attempt to hide her smoking. Ladies were supposed to hang up their coveralls when they came into town, but those were Lynetta's work clothes, and work was all she had time to do. That sounds like the pitch for, like, a 90s sitcom about a <laughs> business lady to me. It does, but that's so interesting that Raven describes her in that way, because Road to Jonestown is, like... Like she was work shy, she expected everything to come to her. Oh, she interesting. Was, yeah. Oh, so we've got some uh, different information about Lynetta. Um, but anyway, so Lynetta uh, married a World War One veteran whose name was Jim Thurman Jones, um, known around uh, Lynn in Indiana, where they lived, as uh, Big Jim. Um, Big Jim had been injured in a German gas attack and was 15 years Lynetta's senior when they married. Big Jim's family gave the newlyweds a down payment for a small farm uh, nearby um, and left the rest up to them, basically. There's your farm. Go on. Get on with it. But the farm was difficult and Lynetta didn't really like it. And she was jealous of the other women who she saw going around town in their nice clothes. And she had to be a farm worker. Um, and so in order to gain more sympathy from the Jones family, she gave birth to a baby Jones. It's really interesting because the the way that's sort of framed in Raven is that she'd been this woman who was like, no, I don't want children. That's not for me. I'm going to carry on. And then having met James, then it happens. And then she sort of really has to shift her life around yeah. to, to getting on board. Oh, um, yeah, I definitely get that feeling in that she had a she, almost she had the child out of malice and out of wanting to get something from the child rather than because she wanted to be a mother. Or even that it just wasn't planned and then she was stuck with him. And we'll see, you know, these are both bad parents. In terms of tracking the life of Jim Jones from yes. now on, so much of where he's going to end up is rooted in, you know, the, the, the actually the mix of both the good things and the bad things that his parents do yeah. in relation to him have such an impact. And compared to what I thought researching is, it felt more like all that stuff about the pinpoints of a serial killer. Yeah, absolutely. Have you heard the Philip Larkin poem, This Be The Verse? No. It goes, they fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. Oh, yeah, that's definitely, um, definitely the case, case here. And you hear that, but you know, so the descriptions, once young James Warren Jones, Jim or Jimmy, um, is around Jimba. as an infant, Jimba. Jimba was another one. 
that's a name that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, maybe for the best. If your name is Jimba and you're out there, chat to us. Say hi. But you have this situation where Lynetta's basically out and working. His dad um, is increasing, you know, he's a disabled war vet. He can barely speak because it causes him so much pain where his lungs are scarred. Yeah. So there's no one to look after this kid who, as a small infant, is wandering around unsupervised nearly all of the time. There's this incident um, early on. So she's at work. He's playing by the railroad tracks beside his house. And he nearly gets hit by a passing train while he's playing. And it's only uh, his, yeah, sort of sense of luck that he doesn't get hit down because his little cart that he's running around gets smashed by the train, supposedly. So we're talking quite strong neglect. Yeah. The thing with Jim's childhood, though, is that because all of it came from his compulsive liar mother, Lynetta, and him, who would say anything to make himself seem... Or his friends, I suppose. divinely appointed... Yeah, there's a guy, Max, that he meets, isn't there? Did you hear about Max? There's Max and Don and a few other... Oh, I didn't hear about Don. Oh, Max Knight. Yeah, there we go. Um, So, Lynn, uh, in Indiana, is a fairly small town, or was in this time. I don't know what it's like now. It's also a dry town. So after Prohibition yeah. ends in uh, 1933, it still remains a dry town. No alcohol is available. Alcohol is very highly frowned upon. And there are loads of churches as well. For like yeah. a small town, there are, I'm going to forget the exact number now, but I think there's something like 12 of them around mm-hmm. in various different um, denominations. Um, and that's interesting what you say about like the mythologizing of jim's childhood um because mrs kennedy who's going to become an important figure Mm -hmm. in our story very shortly supposedly she's one of the people that hears this story of him barely being missed by the train when he's out playing neglected and that's one of the things where she goes oh that's like god looking out for you yeah and thinking that thing of what children start to hear about themselves is really so the way jeff jeff gwynn describes Lynn is that it was kind of a general supervision sort of thing so everyone would let their kids go and play out but everyone would look out for everyone's kids yeah but Lynetta didn't want to look after other people's shitty kids well also she wasn't there because she She was at work yeah Yeah, she couldn't she wasn't interested she didn't care and so Jim would be sent out to play but he wouldn't be allowed back in the house until Lynetta had got home from work yeah and everyone knew about this and just kind of felt a bit sorry for him yeah just and they talk about that he, you know, he's wandering around dirty. His clothes aren't washed. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, covered in filth. Um, sometimes whether he's wearing um, clothes or not. So you really get that sense early on, don't you? That this is someone who has nothing. It was a bit like, do you know, the book A Child Called It? No. Almost kind of that. I mean, that's about a much more serious case of mm. um, parents abusing their child. But it's like this poor. My one note of sympathy for this person. This poor <laughs> abandoned scraggy kid just wandering around with almost completely absent parents Mm -hmm. so big jim would spend all his time at the pool hall drinking uh soda and coffee maybe more yeah i bet there was definitely under the counter stuff going on wasn't there yeah and so lynetta would teach jim these big life lessons like there's always some them out to get you and reality is whatever you believe it to be. And so we can see that where it's putting him as a little child growing up and he turns reality into... Yeah, and she has. they talk about her having these sort of long kitchen table conversations about whatever political or spiritual or, or whatever thing that she had on her mind. Mm-hmm. And I guess for her as well, because she has nobody else to, to talk to about it. There's this quote as well about... Um, so picture the scene. It's one of these kitchen table conversations. Um, the dad who, yeah, from everything I've read in different places, is kind of virtually sort of mute. He doesn't really yeah. communicate with either of them. Sometimes he's just sort of lying and rasping in the next room. Um, with him in the next room, in earshot, she tells Jim, don't be a nothing like your dad. Make something of your life and be somebody. Work at it. Nobody is going to help you. again you just and it's really difficult actually because because we know where this is going yeah. and i think i certainly feel that in this writer in this book 
I think there's also a tendency to then really try and shape the biography to explain what happens later on. Yeah. So I think it's slightly, you know, I don't think you can necessarily make as strong a causal link as people sometimes do. Mm. But definitely, you, if you're doing like the tick of various psychological troubles that Absolutely, Jim has later, yeah. you can really sort of um, run it through. So yeah. while little tiny Jimmy is wandering around in Lynn, about four years old, um, everyone in Lynn goes to church except the Jones family and that's kind of, no one says anything because they're all Christians and stuck up but they frown on it a bit. Yeah. and uh, Mrs Kennedy is this nice lady who she'll leave pies out on her windowsill for the kids who are running around to help themselves to John's frowning No, life is so different now isn't it to be like if you were the person leaving pies out for children in the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. and she kind of took little Jimmy under her wing um, and uh, Myrtle Kennedy was a, a Nazarene, I don't know what the, Nazarene Christian yep. person. Um, and that's a particularly uh, strict form of Christianity from what I could um, understand from the road to Jonestown. Um, and so she took little Jimmy with her to church and he loved it. He thought it was great. He loved hearing the songs. He loved watching the pastor stood in the front with everyone paying him attention. Um, and privately, he started calling Mrs. Kennedy mum. Yeah, and because this is a kid that, you know, basically has no family, this probably is the first time that he starts to find something that feels like a, a yeah. family kind of vibe. Because otherwise... And this might be important for later on as well. He's just been like playing with local stray animals and things. And those have been the people that he's hanging out with and um, talking to. Um, And he's really, you know, this is a messed up kid. And how much we can trust him, I don't know. But here's a quote from Jim about his childhood. Okay. Quote, I was ready to kill by the end of third grade. I mean, I was so fucking aggressive and hostile. I was ready to kill. Nobody gave me any love, any understanding. In those days, a parent was supposed to go with a child to school functions. Everybody's fucking parents were there, but mine. I was standing alone. Always alone. Yep, we both just had a little... (laughs) And yet suddenly he's going to church on the regular with this sort of brilliant... Nice lady. Seeming lady and yeah. the nice church community. And Lynetta seems kind of cool with it. She's sort of not bothered. She, she says sometimes she doesn't believe in God, but she doesn't care if he does. Yeah, she sort of a... takes the piss out of Miss Kennedy now and again, yeah. um, from what I can read. And Jimmy seems to be all right with it, but at the same time also starts having weirdly sort of biblical nightmares with snakes in them, which is oh. the only time that Lynetta goes, oh, this is a bit uncomfortable, supposedly. So Jim's had a really, really good time at this Nazarene church with um, Mrs. Kennedy, but he knows there's all these other churches around that he could go and see, and they're all different Christian denominations. So, oh, have I skipped on? No, it's fine. So he starts going to all these other different churches. So on a Sunday, he'll go, he'll alternate Sundays between the Nazarene church and a different church, or he'll start the Sunday at one church and then walk to a different one. So by the end of the day, he's at a different, at the end of a different service. Um, And he basically, in doing this, learned to keep everybody sweet and learned how to speak to people, especially elderly people, and really form a connection. And so you hear, um, hear from older residents of Lynn that everyone felt like they had their little connection with Jimmy, their little personal connection with him, which is absolutely important later on. Yeah. And he's really taking on these things. He's trying all of these different versions of uh, Christianity in the town and where he ends up spending most of his time and where he really enjoys what's going on um, is a denomination called the Gospel Tabernacle, which is full on Pentecostal, speaking in tongues, healings, really enthusiastic Christianity. Um, To the point where Myrtle Kennedy is really a bit worried that he's being led astray by the tongue-speaking people and is sort of regularly praying for Jim to come back to the right church. So meanwhile, while he's exploring all of these different churches, he's doing some kind of weird shit for a kid. So about the age of seven, um, he gathered up all his little neighbourhood child friends 
and uh, said, oh, come on guys, we're gonna go to this really fun place. And he took them to a warehouse that housed coffins for a funeral service. Yes. So he got all these kids to lay down in the coffins so they knew what it felt like to be dead. And then after that, no one really wanted to play with him. Which is totally understandable. The worst thing that happened to me when I was a kid was me and the boy opposite across the road cut each other's fringes too high. Ooh. Bad to you in America. All right, let me play this uh, small violin for this story of childhood. But I didn't have to lay down in a coffin. Yikes. Did you not? Did you not have a weird, weird friend like that though? That was slightly at the edge of no things. So I can think of two people who I won't name. One of whom was slightly and slightly too much into like horror and serial killer stuff for someone of their age. Not age seven, surely. No, no, that's not. uh, That no, that's not. No, slightly later, maybe early late childhood, early teens. Also, someone who kept a stake under their bed secretly that we once found when we were in their house and I don't think they were doing it ironically yeah I'll decide whether to keep that in because I don't I don't suspect they listen but he didn't say Um, their name or gender so there's no way to know so here's a quote from Chuck Wilmore who was one of Jones's friends um I thought Jimmy was a really weird kid he was obsessed with religion he was obsessed with death a friend of mine told me he saw Jimmy kill a cat with a knife. Gross. When he was 10 years old, World War II began. And um, as was the way in those days, all the little American kids were like, yeah, soldiers, GIs, they're awesome. Jimmy is alternative and he loves the Nazis. He loves the pageantry. He loves how uh, disciplined they all are. And he loves Hitler. He loves Hitler's oratory and his speeches. He doesn't understand what he's saying, but he loves the way he riles the crowd up and then gets everyone to listen to mm. him whispering. And he thinks this is incredible. And because um, these kids didn't want to play with him when he's after he made them all sit in coffins, he tries to play with the younger kids instead. And if they don't want to play with him, he bullies them until they do. Mm. And he uh, gets a, has a switch that he will smack these Nazi children with. He gets them to goose step and he gets them to salute while he plays the part of Hitler. He got in trouble for that, which is good. Of course. And uh, this is a bit earlier, but in 1945, he finds Hitler's suicide really impressive. He thinks it's amazing. What an amazing thing to do for what you believe. Um, When he was 11, he started teaching all his neighbourhood friends about sex from what he's heard from his mum. And his mum talks very openly about the sexual affair that she's having. Yeah. Um, because her her husband, Big Jim, who will soon become Old Jim uh, in his 40s. Oh, so that's bad. not what you want, is it? No. To go from <sighs> big to old. Um, he doesn't sexually satisfy her anymore. So she openly has this love affair um, that Jim knows about. And that makes him lose even more respect for his father. Yeah. When he was... 14, uh, Jimmy set up a baseball league in town. So he would he'd set up this um, this team for Lynn and he would borrow his dad's car and drive them to games at 14 years old, drive them to other high school's games and he set up a league table wow. that he would keep track of. And not only did... You can't fault his organisational skills, no, can you? Whatever you say about him. Taxes. Um, would I? Um... He was, yeah, so not only would he keep track of the teams, he would keep track of individual players' statistics, which meant the players felt so super special because they had their own statistics all yeah. about them. During a... Oh, my notes. Here we go. Uh, during one of the meetings with his baseball, te- baseball team and the league, they were up in a loft, and uh, I don't have the exact quote, but one of his teammates said that uh, there was a puppy. One of them had a puppy up there. And they were up in this loft, and Jimmy was enticing the puppy towards him. Lured this puppy over an open trapdoor, where it fell down through the trapdoor to its demise. Again, that was the end of the baseball league. No one wanted to play with Jimmy anymore. Yeah, yeah, I did hear that. Hear that story. So he's doing lots. So he has this sort of loft in a is it a barn nearby? Yeah. Um, that's part of his parents' property. And he's regularly mirroring the stuff that he's seeing in church, preaching to the local kids that yeah. come and hang out with him. 
um, having services, having funerals for dead animals that they find. Yep. And then some kids go, and actually then we became suspicious because actually there were quite often dead animals, like yep. much more than the ones we were just finding, that we would have really elaborate funerals for. He was also keeping pigeons oh. and putting messages on them and sending these pigeons off. And then some of the kids would be like, mate, what are you doing? <laughs> What's that about? And he'd go, oh, I, I can't tell you I'm sending them off on secret missions and secret communications around <laughs> the town but that sounds like regular kid behavior yeah but Not the funeral stuff yeah. but like my secret mission yeah i still think it's yeah. quite interesting in terms of what happens uh later on and it I gets ru- found them. <laughs> <laughs> someone shot a pigeon for their roast dinner and it makes me think have you seen the producers yeah. The more recent yes. one. Yeah. <laughs> Where he's got all those little uh, Nazi pigeons up on his uh, <laughs> roof. That's what I'm imagining uh, that he had. Um, and here's something that uh, early on gave me the strongest um, creeps. Um, so it's this really stuffy little barn loft space. Sometimes they have these really horrible funerals. Sometimes, like, if there's only a couple of kids that have come to play, a few times Jim locks them in there on a day when it's hot and horrible and, like, fucks off for a few hours so that they can't get out and then comes back and thinks it's a great um, joke. Um, But then sometimes in the summer, because it's really hot, he does a kind thing um, and he serves them from a bowl of lemonade or sweet punch. Or when it's hot, he goes, Hey, kids, it's really hot. Why don't you come into my um, church service in the barn? And drink some lemonade and punch. Oh my god, that was not in this book. <sighs> Is that not creepy? And sometimes the password to get into the loft for these church services was Heil Hitler. Ugh. Tying in with what you've said. So he's grabbing sort of ideas and role models from anywhere yeah. he possibly can. Uh, Jimmy had a really weird relationship with women his age or girls his age. Um, and so there's a couple of bits in The Road to Jonestown about when he was trying to get his first girlfriend when he was in secondary school. <laughs> oh, it's, it's not going to end well, is it? So there was this girl, Sarah Lou, who he met, who she, he thought was just wonderful. And he would stalk her. He would follow her at school. He would follow her home from school. And then one day, Sarah Lou got home from school to find Jimmy in her house, just chatting up, chatting up his, her parents. And her parents thought he was just such a wonderful boy and he they invited him to church with them. So Ooh. he went to church with Sarah Lou and her parents and Sarah Lou, you can you know, is just like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> um, oh, Sarah Lou. And he persisted and persisted and then when it became clear he that she didn't want to go out with him, he moved on to this other, other girl whose name was Phyllis. It's fun to imagine 14-year-old Phyllis's. I do just picture her as an 80-year-old woman. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm now imagining. And to seduce her, he just walked up to her and grabbed her hand to hold her hand. I mean, that'd work on me. Oh, okay. There we go. Does this mean we just held hands? Are we in a relationship now? Yep, that's oh, the rule. That's kind of weird. Um, and they never, him and Phyllis, at, you know, late teens or mid-teens, never did anything else other than holding hands. They never kissed. They never cuddled. They just held hands and were awkward uh, teens. Jim's still talking to all these kids about how much he knows about sex and the acts of sex, but him with his girlfriend will just hold hands. Oh, that, I mean, that's also sort of typical teenager mm-hmm. vibe, isn't it? But yeah. again, interesting for later on. Yeah. <sighs> so it's important to say as well that there's also some positive stuff uh, happening. Um, admittedly, he's still a bit of a uh, loner, but he's becoming a bit smarter, you know, mm. compared to like this image of him as a rough, t- uh, dirty child wandering around. Suddenly he's dressing really well. He's famous for his slicked back raven-coloured hair, hence the title, the title of the book. Um, and yeah, and that he starts to have, there is some positive influence from uh, Lynetta, who perhaps isn't a great human being in lots of ways, but who... Well, she always tells him that he's... Uh, meant for something brilliant and he's yeah. going to do great things in the world and he's going to be the most important man. And... and again, unusually, she seems quite political for her age, for yeah. all her faults that she is, you know, she bangs the drum to him about things being unequal yes, um, yeah, absolutely. between different people. And so one of the things that they do as a pair um, is go out and give food to the local tramps and yeah. to homeless 
people um, and Jim's sort of really sort of into doing those kind of acts of kindness around the town. Yeah, and they go to uh, the nearest big city, Richmond, to do the same thing. And as a teenager, Jim starts getting the train by himself to Richmond to preach to these tramps via the train tracks. Which he does dressed in his own clerical robe that he's just like made out of a sheet. <laughs> And he starts doing that as home as well. One of the things he's famous for as a teen is that he's like wandering around in this sheet made oh, vestment. <laughs> which, whenever I picture it, is just a bit like a bandage sort of shroud thing, but I imagine it was a bit more, slightly imagine more tailored. With a belt. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing can really go wrong with your homemade outfit as long as you accessorize um, with a belt. Um, but it's also supposedly around uh, then that he starts to become really aware of the big inequality that's going on in America and in the places that he lives between white people and black people. Yes. So we're in the late 40s now and America is still mainly segregated. Um, Rosa sure. Parks doesn't happen for another, what, seven years? And well, she, She's happened. She's alive, but she yeah. hasn't boycotted the buses. Um, <laughs> and we'll talk more about that kind of segregation, I think, probably later on yes. when we talk about what he starts to do. But there are... And again, it's hard to know how true all of these stories might be because some of them come from Jim, some of them come from other people. But it seems like there are a fair few examples because his dad is supposedly pretty racist. Right. In different reports, I've heard that he either was or wasn't involved with the KKK at some point. Yes, I have a bit about that further up in my notes, actually. Bear with me one second. Um, in uh, Indiana, which is the state they're in, uh, KKK membership in like the 20s and 30s was 118,000 people yeah. were members of the KKK. Which is, it goes without saying, that's horrific. Yeah, that's a really incredibly high number. Although interestingly, in one of the thing articles I read, they said, but actually in Lynn, there weren't any KKK people because there weren't any, there wasn't any integration whatsoever. There weren't any black people around, so it sort of wasn't one of their target right. areas. But supposedly, when he's a kid. Jim Jones does befriend a few of the sort of outlying, mm. because he's been out to the poorer areas with his mum, whether yeah. it's with the homeless or to the poorer parts of town, he does start to meet some of the black people that live locally mm. and he does befriend them. Yeah. And there's one story that he tells, who knows if it's true, that he brings a black friend home with him with some other kids at one point and his dad goes, you can't come in, you're not coming in with him. Oh. And so Jim goes yeah. and says all right i'm not going to come and like for six days doesn't come home great um and supposedly when he's in high school as well he's in the basketball team mm. and quits when the coach is really racist and he drops out from the, the yeah. high school basketball team and that he's he does in. a few things like that throughout his life as well yeah which, which make you go cool good guy standing up for someone who you know isn't at the moment able to stand up for themselves there's this really nice quote about him early on, which is like, um, uh, so Jim Jones shows compassion and empathy coexisted with some really unkind tendencies. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So can I tell you about some unkind tendencies? Yes, please. So one of his childhood friends is Don Foreman. Yeah. Who's been friends with him sort of all the way through school on and off okay. at different times. Um, normally there's a bit of a pattern of their sort of friends and then Jim does something and they stop being friends for a little bit of time and mm -hmm. they sort of become friends um, again. Um, and at some point, Jim gets a BB gun um, that's given to him by his father, you know, for hitting cans and shooting birds. America more, and their guns. More animals for your um, animal funerals. One day, they're just sort of chatting and hanging out, um, as teenage boys might be wont to do. And Jim points the gun at Don and shoots him with the Yay. BB gun. So it embeds. He's bleeding uh, a little bit. And Jim says, I just wondered whether you could stand it. <sighs> and at this point, Don is starting to go, this is a bit bad. He gets quite angry. But they still hang out. They go hunting rabbits. Don loans Jim a twenty-two calibre rifle. Don's got a shotgun. Uh -huh. They're walking around. Don notices Jim's being a bit unsafe with the gun and pointing it at Don's legs when Don's not looking. And the third time Don turns away, says to Jim, look, stop doing it. And Jim says something like, I've been thinking about ordering you to stop walking away. 
and he's like, "What? What? What do you mean? Uh, like, if you step again, I'll shoot you." Ugh. And at that point, it discharges, and he shoots him through the toe of one of his shoes, very, very narrowly, missing his foot. Ugh. And yeah. You know, if there'd been a good guy with a gun nearby. Hashtag satire. Um, so uh, there are a few times like this where Don is like, what's going on? Um, and then slightly later on, um, a very similar thing happens where they're hanging out and then Don's like, oh, I'm going to go home now. And Jim goes, no, you're not. You're not going to go home. Yeah. I want you to stay. You're going to stay now. And Don's like, mate, I'm out of here. I'm what are you doing? And Jim's like, oh, I'm going to, sh- I'll shoot you if you, I'll shoot you if you go and sort of um, as he goes, um, points this pistol at him and sort of shoots along the road and the trees as Don's trying to get away and go home. Oh, man. And then as we'll see, because of what we'll talk about in a minute, there's um, a bit more time before something else happens that finally makes Don go, I'm not going to be friends with you anymore. But that's going to come up slightly later on. as Jim gets a job. So now we're in 1948 and uh, Lynetta decides that because she's so wonderful and her son is so wonderful. You hate her so much, I love it. She's such a knob. Like, if you don't want a kid, don't have a fucking kid. Don't have a kid to spite your in-laws or to get more money out of people. And if you're going to raise this twat, don't have a kid. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So she decides that... So isn't it just, sorry, just so many of those things so many of these people so many of these groups you go bad parenting but neither of us are parents no so oh my they... parenting is incredibly difficult of don't course. get me wrong yeah but, but most that's... people do it right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. These yeah yeah well exactly um so lynetta decides that because the joneses hate her she's been having this um extramarital affair for all this time that her and jimba and old jim if he has to should move to richmond which is the bigger city a little bit further away. So Jim is 17 now. Uh, he makes some more churchy friends his own age. And here's where he learns about communism and socialism. Um, he gets a job as a hospital porter. He's finished school now. He's bored of school. Doesn't want to do school anymore. I think he's... Is he still in school? He started while he was still in high school, I think. At oh, the did hospital. He? Let's ignore that then. Doesn't so matter, he... So he gets a job as a hospital porter. And he's he's working a lot. He's also working in a factory at the same time. Mm. He's working in this hospital as an orderly. He's always shown a bit of an interest in all things medical. Another one of these sort of childhood stories around the animals is that he also tries like operations with some of the kids on some of the animals that are around. Ooh. There's one story I think of him trying to do like a blood transfusion uh, like between two cats. Yeah. And now he's found a hospital to work in uh, as an orderly. There, he's kind of really liked. Yeah. People like him. He's hardworking. Like he's great at it. He's fun. Yeah. He's friendly. He he's... gets on with all these jobs that people don't want to do. He cleans out bedpans and makes these uh, elderly people laugh while he's cleaning up their poops. Again, like we've talked about, he's like nicely turned out. He's got this slick back hair. He looks kind of cool. He's got a slightly unorthodox sort of look that some people sort of mistake as being ethnically ambiguous he's kind of an interesting guy he's loving hospital orderly life yes so much so he wants a friend so he gets don a job also being an orderly with him in the hospital but he then spends that entire time using the job as a way to bully don so he knows from childhood that Don's afraid of the dark. So he'll do things like go, oh, actually, in that corridor where the lights are out now and it needs cleaning, you've got to go and do that. Yeah. You've got to do the night shift now so that you're, he sort of lines things up so he has to work in uncomfortable dark conditions. And he knows that Don is really squeamish. And so one day he calls him into the uh, um, office, whatever they have, janitor's uh, orderly area and he goes um they need you to take this bundle down to the incinerator and he hands him this mysteriously wrapped um bundle and takes it down makes him take it down to the um 
incinerator and it's a human leg. Whoa, wouldn't you just ask for a trolley? And he makes him feed it into the incinerator. Um, there are a few other um, the stories like that that he sort of makes him handle all these body parts and things as part of his job and clearly is really enjoying how uncomfortable Don is. But after the leg incinerator incident, at that point, Don is like, I'm done with this job yeah. and I'm done with Jones. Good. Quits at the hospital, quits Jones and disappears out of our story only to appear very briefly later on. Ooh. So while he's working at... Um at the hospital, he meets a lovely lady named Marceline. And Jim's 17, Marceline is 22. She's a student nurse. Uh, she was raised Methodist and Republican. And she's totally taken with this guy. He's talking to her about racial equality and how it's not fair that black people can't be treated the same way as white people in the hospital. Um, and she thinks he's brilliant. So they go. they start going out. Have a lovely little relationship going on. And again, like you've said, with childhood people, the sense is that it's a really like aggressive courtship. Yeah. That he's like always there. He'll always come and see her. Yeah. He'll buy her things. He'll, he's He'll like be there to walk he's to work, to home from work. all in. Yes. Um, and she she encourages him to start uh, learning about hospital management because she sees how good he is with patients and things like that. She said you could run this place. So he couldn't be a doctor, but maybe he could be a hospital administrator of yeah. some sort. So encourages him to go to university. So in January of 1949, Jim starts attending the University of Indiana. Anything? No, keep going. I'm enjoying it. Cool. <laughs> um, that following June, Jim and Marceline get married. Ah, uh, in a double wedding. With her sister? With her sister. Is that not the most and awkward weird family yeah. function ever of going oh you and your sister are going to get married not only around the same time but on the, the same, same day age. in the same service i've just written lots of exclamation of marks next to it on my page to go what the heck is that about just after they've uh, got married he's round at his in-laws house chatting and uh, marceline's mother makes just a passing comment about how she disagrees with uh, interracial marriage and Jim gets angry, doesn't like it, puts Marceline in the car, puts all their stuff in the car and drives away. He's now isolated Marceline from her parents yeah. initially. So ding, ding, ding. That is our first cult. Well, our first cult thing as an adult that we've seen about him isolating people from the ones that love them. So there is a story about while they're married, one day Marceline is driving them both along. She's driving along, and Jim makes this. Comment. What you can't see, listeners, is that Sam was doing a beautiful driving along mime just then. It was. <laughs> I was in a car crash this week, and so it's kind of painful for me to be pretending pretending to drive as much less. Painful. And yet you did it in a really happy fashion. Then do, do, do. I'm doing it again. You can't see me. I'll stop mining. Sam is fine, by the way, listeners. She's I'm fine. all right. We're all 100%. very grateful. Yes. Um. So anyway, while they're driving along, Jim just casually drops into conversation that he doesn't believe in God. And Marceline's like, whoa, you told me, you, I've been going to church with you, yeah. you've been talking to me about all this, and you don't actually believe it? You get get out of the car. And so she stops in the middle of a road in Indiana. Don't know what it's like there, but let's say it's this part is desolate. Yep. I'm sure it's lovely. Send me pics. <laughs> and uh, she makes him get out of the car and walk, and she drives away. She drives off and leaves him. And then as she's going along, she feels a bit sad. Mm. And she goes back and picks him up again. Um, and because of this, she tells her family that she's unhappy in her marriage. She doesn't want to be with someone who doesn't believe in God. Um, but uh, Baldwin women don't get divorced, is what she's told by her mum. Oh. She's not allowed to get divorced. It's not the done thing. She's got to stick with it. Can I... I don't know if this is... I don't know if I want this to be in. When I was at university, the um, chancellor was uh, Fluella Benjamin... Don't know if you remember her <laughs> UK TV people. She um famously was on the children's TV program Play Away or Play Days. Yes. Where she hung out with a Piero clown. Okay. That I knew there would only be one Fluella. Um and she was one of the sort of famous early uh, black children's TV presenters. Really amazing, inspirational woman. Spent our graduation going, I just want you to know whatever happens in your life now, if nobody else loves you, there's one person who loves you. 
me, Floella Benjamin. <laughs> She's amazing. If you're listening, Flo, I love you. Um, but afterwards, she was. We met her at like this reception for a building that was opening. Um, and I remember she was like dispensing words of wisdom. And to my female peers, she went, you know, and it's just also really important that none of you get divorced. It's really important that you don't get divorced unless maybe if there's violence. What? Fluella, you're wrong. And they were like, oh, we're, ca- they, we're Catholic anyway. We're, they were bad Catholics. But they were, oh, we're Catholic anyway. Don't worry about it. But yeah, it was really weird that suddenly, just out of nowhere and all this jolly chit-chatter, she went, by the way, don't get divorced. To the female peers, not to the male peers. The male peers are allowed to get as divorced as... It was more like. weighted towards... It was to all of us, but it was okay. slightly more weighted to them. I don't know if any of that should go in, but I just wanted to tell you that story. That's fascinating. So it seems like there are occasionally moments when their marriage seems sort of okay. But then again, as with a lot of his other close relationships, like with Don, you get these sudden weird moments of like cruelty or playfulness that kick in. But it's that's reflected in every abusive relationship is that there are moments that are okay that you can cling to and there are moments that are not okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely in that playbook, isn't it? Yeah. So here's just a sample one um, here in my notes. So one day uh, Marceline is cooking dinner. Uh, and he starts reading a story from the newspaper about a car accident. And he goes down the list of the people that have been killed and just casually throws in um, the name of one of her closest friends. And she obviously is devastated. She's crying. She's, you know, really going out there in, in grief. And then he goes, no, actually, I'm I'm just kidding. That's not true. Ah. Uh, I don't know why I behave in surprise because he's obviously like world's number one prick, but that's oh that's so disgusting. But also, I think that it's sort of it's framed in the book as being like a oh your person, your friend that you love. How would you react if they died? Yeah. Mm, is that how you'd react if I did? Does that show how strong you're? Ooh. He's not. I'm going to come out and say it this early on. He's not a nice man. I don't think. No. I mean, well. <laughs> he. It's really He's a hard bad to man puzzle that out. Does some good things. Yes, yes, and which I suppose is true of all people, one way or the other. I suppose to greater or lesser extents, but much greater or lesser extents. <laughs> yeah, especially in this case. Yeah, but it is weird, isn't it? It's so we so want people to just be consistently one thing. Yeah, that it really. It's hard to reconcile when someone yeah. does some really amazingly good things. Yeah, when they do such catastrophic. Yeah. Anyway, so um, Marceline has this cousin, Ronnie. Who's uh, aged 10 in 1950. Yep. And um, he's ended up in a foster home. Yes. Because uh, one of his parents has died and his mother is is sort of, um, they decide that she's incapable. So he's in this foster home. Yeah not having a great time there, and also having repeated really bad stomach aches. And Jim and Marceline hear about that, don't think that's a great thing, and Jim goes, okay, we're going to go and get him then. Yeah. So they go to the foster home, um, drive there in the car, and they take him straight away to Reed Hospital. And as it turns out, the reason he's been having stomach ache and stomach cramps, as they suspected, um, is that he had, his appendix had ruptured, had Ooh. burst, and that effectively saves his life. Yeah. Um, so they they spend a lot of time with Ronnie. They visit him a lot. They take him to church with them, play with him, have a fun time. And uh, but Ronnie sees both sides of Jim. Mm. He notices how two faced he is, and how he'll go out to church and tell everyone how much he believes in God, and he'll go home and be the atheist he actually is and then he, he's not he doesn't like it very much he wants an honest person to be raising him and so when jim and marceline try to adopt ronnie formally ronnie says no ronnie's holding out for his mum to get better um and he would rather live with a foster family than be adopted by jim and marceline yeah um and to give an example of one example of why that might be the case just because it ties in with lots of the animal stuff later on. So um, at this point now, the Joneses have a little menagerie of animals. They've got a few monkeys and dogs and cats and things and some mm-hmm. birds, I think. 
um, and Ronnie is expected to sort of help him there upkeep um and one day he forgets to feed them or forgets to feed some of them and marceline like properly beat spanks him for having forgotten Mm -hmm. and then one day the monkey learns to open the window and to (laughs) that sounds like a foreign language sentence you might say doesn't it (laughs) the monkey learns to open the window le chat est sur la table you know what stand up on Yes, I do. <laughs> um, and uh, the monkey causes all kinds of trouble around the, the house, <laughs> as you might um, imagine. Um, and Ronnie really becomes afraid of the monkey because, like some of the other animals, Jim can pretty much command it to attack. <laughs> um, and once or twice, um, Jim would make a certain noise, point at Ronnie, and the monkey would come after him. And really try and sort of chase him and attack him around the house. And it would take Marceline coming in to go, no, all right, stop. Which is not great. So as you say, pretty quickly, despite, you know, they've got a social worker in, the church have all been quite supportive of making it happen. He's like, no. No, I'm going to wait for my mum. But thanks. Do you have anything else before 1951? Um, Just to say that Marceline is increasingly thinking about divorce during Uh all of this time um but as you might expect because of the time and how difficult that would be she keeps deciding no no i won't no it's not the right time now or there'll suddenly be a strong period of gym kindness and loveliness yeah um and she just keeps delaying it yeah um in 1951 old jim dies and his grave is maybe the saddest thing I've ever heard of. I don't know if you read this. I don't, know. On his gravestone is etched, Everyone in the world is my friend. Oh, both of us are doing big sad faces and I've got a little tear in my eye. That is very sad. Everyone in the world is my friend. So I think we've both got to a place in our notes where it's a large uh, attitude shift and a big shift of uh, Jim's life. So we're going to stop this episode here. We've decided just now to make it three parts, you lucky things. Don't Um, we spoil you. We might release both of these on the same day. Ooh, let's see how we feel. But this means you can listen in lovely bite-sized portions. (laughs) We can't end this, our serious, hard-hitting three-parter on Jonestown with you going nom, nom, nom. I beg to differ. No, we're not going to end it. Let's just enjoy this moment of frivolity and laughter before we start to get into uh, the next two parts. So that is uh, the childhood and early years of Jim Jones. Any thoughts on Jim's freaky old childhood? Many thoughts. (laughs) It is just that, isn't it? And it's so interesting over time, you know, like the different versions of that childhood just between the two books or even compared to some of the documentaries as well that sort of actually skim over a lot of this stuff where you're just like, let's just... So much weirdness. Absolutely. There's, but sounds very philosophical, but there is so much to a life, isn't there? Yeah. That, you know. Yeah, and I think that's what I, I mean about this this idea of us trying, trying to, us trying to, I think it was good, <laughs> us trying to go back and like retrofit his childhood to explain what happens later. Yeah. And yet, you have him being incredibly abusive and manipulative to people, holding fake church services, yeah. and serving kids Freaking punch! I hope it tastes nicer than this horrible Kool Aid we're drinking. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm just gonna take. I just. I'd sort of forgotten what it. It's just. Ah. Oh. <laughs> it is not good. It's like. Sorry, this is gonna lose us American uh, listeners now. The thing I'm about to say. It's like a Mountain Dew. I love Mountain Dew. <sighs> Is it not the word? That tastes like a swimming pool to me. To me, it's American chocolate. Now we're really getting rid of everyone. American chocolate. Have you had American chocolate? Yes. Awful. Yes. Terrible. Although Hershey's do lots of nice stuff that isn't their plain Hershey's. Plain Hershey's can go away. Babe Ruth's. Ah, American listeners, if you want to send us some Babe Ruth chocolate bars. I've never had one. What are they? Oh. It's like this a. Has gone very off course. It's like a Snickers, <laughs> but better. As you can see, listeners, this is us taking the dark stuff and then trying to find some yeah. light um, and enjoy ourselves before we go. I'm drinking this again, but I really don't want to. <laughs> Do 
How far are we on your timeline, John? So I have this uh, six-page uh, timeline. Uh, it's called 100 Events in the History of People's Temple, if you want to check it out online. Um, we have ticked off, you'll be glad to know, Sam, in this yeah. first hour of recording, we have ticked off the first two items on <laughs> of the 100 <laughs> in our first hour. It's all right. Things will pick up pace, listeners. Don't worry in the next uh, episode. Just trying to be as thorough as we can, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, but it's it is fascinating, and I think it's it's such a different time period as well to now. Yeah, there's all those cultural things you've got to put into account, like like it being segregated, and like it like people not locking their doors and that sort of thing. Yeah, and you do sort of think, you know, it's sort of in some ways with what happens to him and the influences he happens to be around, you you can see exactly how he ended up where he did because there are just all these sort of weird, softly acting... Clues as well. Yeah. And I just... I mean, it's weird to me that, you know, I I have big sympathy for you, Don, but, like, if once a friend of mine had threatened me with a BB gun and shot me when I didn't want him to... I think at that, I think I'd be out way before the leg in a bag. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Chapter 89 of John Dalton. <laughs> I was out way before the leg, leg in, in the bag. bag. But I think you get that over and over with him, don't you? That yeah. all through his childhood, these people who who are struck with this struggle of going, I see the good thing and the bad thing. That You've got um, Myrtle going, oh, this poor, weird, little, dirty, strange boy going around. But actually, yeah. he does seem quite sweet and nice. And he comes to church with me, and he doesn't always come to the right church, but he's still going to church. Yeah, and you know, and obviously we see all through this that he must have had this real kind of charisma. If you think of that's what always baffles me about his wife, is that she's that much older than him and we know all this stuff that he's kind of a bit of a um oh they always say it again after the fact don't they but this sort of slightly odd loner all through his high school age but suddenly he's in this job and it's like he's able to invent this whole new persona yeah where even though loads of people are like mate he's what four years four or five years younger than you maybe that's you've only just met they get engaged really quickly yeah and that's what I think is always fascinating because we're in a weird position with Jonestown because there's so much archive and letters and recordings oh, and yeah. video of him. But I don't only in some places do you really start to see that that thing that he must have had and that some people... Yeah. Yeah, anything else for you, Sam, at this point? No, I think the the, the most interesting stuff for me comes in this next kind of... In episode two, I assume we haven't recorded it yet, and we will do. We will in a minute. A I'm gonna, yeah, I'm really aware that I'm gonna say something, maybe, controversial, um, not that, not controversial in terms of my view, but like, yeah. What when now? Like when we talk about the early days. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. quite interesting. Just quickly, well, we're gonna we do go. quick photo review. Have yeah. you got any amazing photos I in do. your? Um, Noises, 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 noises. So there's a nice picture of Jim, age nine, in this book, rather ominously holding a cat, given what we know uh, for later on. But look, he's got like a nice little flight. There weren't any child, child pictures in this one. No? I mean, they're just pictures of creepy olden times kids. I mean, that could be him later on, sat in a chair. Yeah. Looking out. He looks like a weird china doll there isn't that what i always think that with lots of these books where you see the pictures of them as a child and you you can just do that where did it all go yeah what i have is this picture we could probably do this without being recorded no it's good we have i have this picture we'll put these up listeners uh, myrtle kennedy oh that is exactly how i expected her to look look. beautiful marceline yeah she was fit man oh see there's lynette jones who never is when i then saw Ah. that is that was not that's not who I pictured. Who I was imagining. No. I was imagining her much uh, younger than that. Um, and there was one more. Well, she I was younger to show at one you. point. She wasn't always that age. <laughs> <laughs> no, please, Sam, explain to me again how the aging process. Of You've seen one photograph work. and you imagined her younger. Well, that's true. I guess that might be her much later. I'm assuming that that's in context with the time in the book. Maybe that's a false well, no, assumption. She's 15 years younger than her husband, wasn't she? 
I guess there, he does look kind of suave in that picture a little bit. This one? Yeah. Not yeah. the one below. He looks like... I don't know what he looks like in the other one. Oh. Looks a bit cartoony. Yeah. It's just so weird, isn't it? You just sort of... Yeah, you just want to see what those moments are actually mm. like and whether they're as weird and whether they're as much red flags as we think they are. Yeah. Now. But then we have the joy of hindsight and of knowing the atrocities yeah. that happen. But anyway. Wow. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. And we will uh, see you very... We won't see you. We'll speak in your ear holes very soon. Um, in episode two of Jonestown, coming very soon. Thank you. Love, Love you. you. Bye. Bye. We're going to talk to you. You are the initiate. You are the cause we've been. We found out that I was actually a